Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, Dada, with your WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back to talk all things WWE in this weekly episode. We're talking SmackDown, we're talking Raw, we're talking Pat McAfee, some releases, some crazy things that have happened in the world of WWE over the last week. And as always, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is here to bring it to you in as detailed a fashion as possible. Chris, I usually get really amped up and jump into the show. We talk about wrestling or some other third topic, but something I just, I never talk about when we get into the show is how amped up the theme music gets me. I think we have one of the premier bangers when it comes to intros and outros in professional wrestling podcasting. I don't know how many other shows you've heard if you listen to other podcasts, but I don't think we give ourselves enough credit for having a banger of an intro theme. No, it's great. I mean, I used to do a Michigan State podcast with The Athletic, and I used to brag that we had the best intro music in the company. It's a big part of a podcast, and I got to say, it gets me amped up every time I hear it. I uh, I don't know when you picked it or how you picked it, but you a made lot it of effort, a lot of effort. I went, I paid for a subscription to this like service where there's you know music that you can. It's royalty free, not royalty free necessarily. You pay a license one time to use it, and I went through. I don't know, thousands of songs. And I, I narrowed it down to five. And this is the one that I chose. I actually, for longtime listeners, I chose the music and cr- I actually crafted an intro to the old podcast I was on in this corner, which turned into State of Combat. I took a, a song that was available in a similar license situation and added some ring bells and some cheering to it. But I was going to do that to this and try to make it sound a little bit more like wrestling. But it's just such a banger. It sounds like it's like the entrance music of someone, right? So I just decided to keep it as it was. I think it's exceedingly strong. You made a good call. I'm a big fan. So that is vintage Chris Vanini, the co-host uh, of these WWE shows. You can find him on Twitter at Chris Vanini. Of course, I am the Silver King Adam Silverstein. You can find me on Twitter personally at Silverstein Adam. But that those are not really the Twitter accounts we want you to follow. The main one we want you to follow is our show, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at getting overcast. And also a reminder. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King Vintage and getting over by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts because with the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, it is all about the five. Speaking of like audio and things, I can't find that sound drop. Booker T saying it's all about the five. I believe it's from his time in TNA. I'm not 100% sure, but I can't find it. I love Finn Balor. I love the sound that we play. I wouldn't hate replacing it with the All About the Five. So if anyone can help me find the video online anywhere, if I can find a video file, I can create the audio from it. So that is your guys' mission. Help me find It's All About the Five. You will hear it on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I also have I'm Bored Brother that I need to add to the sound library. I got to delete some of these. So I don't know which of these sounds I can kind of take off the soundboard, Chris? Like, I feel like this one can maybe go. How about next week, you and I meet up one-on-one for a steak dinner? Like, I don't know if that's going to yeah. keep working. And this one, I feel like, might have already been played out. <laughs> Although yeah. it's kind of funny. Like, I don't it, know. It is. I, I actually, I, I, I came across a couple 
this weekend that I've been meaning to send to you. Yeah, send them over. I'll keep them. I, I won't. I won't spoil them right now. But uh, remind me after we're recording that I should send some of these to you. Ultimately, I'm not worried about the shirt. I'm worried about you know the meat inside the shirt. Don't worry about the shirt. Worry about the meat inside the shirt. That one will never go away. Okay, that's it. We had some fun off the top. Everything's great. Um, we got a lot of WWE to talk about. And for the first time, I think ever in this podcast history, we don't have a two-part main event or a three-part main event. I have a, and it's it, it's weird because Raw was so awful on Monday night. <laughs> yeah. But somehow the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is presenting to you a six-part main event. And we're going to start as we always try to do on a good note. And starting on a good note when it comes to talking about WWE means starting with SmackDown. Uh, let's go to Roman Reigns, the big dog, the, the main guy stirring the drink on that show, the straw that stirs the drink, as one might say. Reigns opened SmackDown on Friday as obviously the Universal Champion looking smug and as confident as ever. WWE heavily piped in booze and you suck chance to the point that it was almost ridiculous. It was but, very loud. <laughs> yeah, it was very loud. And it's like, okay, we know that there's not fans here, right? So you didn't need to be that blatant with it. But I, I actually kind of liked it. And I think Reigns was laughing at it. So it was kind of good. Yeah. Uh, Reigns and Paul Heyman said he smashed, stacked, and pinned a couple of Hall of Famers in the main event of WrestleMania. And WWE will probably never put him in a triple threat match again. He guessed no one would challenge him because no one's at his level. And they were prepared to leave. Just as he was about to leave, Cesaro came out in a suit looking pretty dapper and got in Reigns' face. When he reached for a mic, Heyman, Reigns, and Jey Uso all left the ring, basically just totally disrespecting Cesaro as a potential opponent. He never got to speak. Uh, backstage, Adam Pearce and Sonya Deville, they were having a heated discussion when Cesaro walked up and he said he wanted Reigns, even if it was a non-title match. Pearce was about to grant it when Deville stopped him and basically said she'll ask Reigns about it. They were clearly still building tension. And I did think it was a couple of strong segments to open the show. To me, it's clear DeVille is going to take over SmackDown. And I think Pierce is going to be exclusive to Raw. I thought this was going to progress where Pierce, uh, sorry, where DeVille would return to the ring. But I think they're going to keep her in this GM role for a while. I don't love that because I think she's a good wrestler and I want to see her. But I do like that they're continuing the story and they're planting seeds for something to happen. And I did think opening the show with Reigns being put up so strong not having Edger Bryan there, them selling the concerto still, and then having Cesaro, who beat Rollins, a multi-time world champion, and saying, hey, I'm the next guy. I thought it made a ton of sense, and them disrespecting him, I thought it made a ton of sense. So I really liked the opening. Yeah, overall, it was good. I, I mean, we'll get into it later, but it remains interesting how everything SmackDown does just makes sense for the most right. part, and you can right. go along with it. And yeah, that part where Sonya Deville says, no, actually, I'm going to chat with Roman Reigns before we kind of make this decision. I thought that it's a good little tension there. SmackDown does a better job with Adam Pierce than Raw does. And I really like Adam Pierce in this role as we've He's talked good. about him for a yeah. while. He's really, really good. It was, first off, Roman Roman's promo was awesome. Honestly, I think one of the best promos he's ever cut. Yeah. And and he just he's just so comfortable confident in this role we see it every week and coming off of a win like that like an all-time iconic finish pin to a wrestlemania main event you got to come out and drop bombs on your next promo and that's exactly what he did talking about them being hall of famers and pinning them on top of each other 
really, really good stuff. I, the only thing is I thought it was weird. Cesaro comes out and Roman leaves, which I think plays into Roman's character well, but then going to commercial and then coming back and not, not getting Cesaro on the mic in that situation was weird. We didn't get an explanation yeah. of it, it. It was just kind of a weird time to go to commercial. Uh, I get the idea was he was insulting Cesaro, but uh, that production decision just felt a little off, but it wasn't, it wasn't terrible decision by any means, but overall a really good segment. Just kind of a weird bit there. That is something that happened throughout SmackDown and Raw. They made really weird production decisions. When to go to commercial, not following up on things, uh, showing highlights of the show a million times. Like uh, we'll get to it in talking about Cesaro momentarily, but even on Raw, they showed like replays of stuff that happened in the first 45 minutes of the show, like six times over the course of the show. And none of it was stuff like back in the day where Austin would do something crazy and you had to catch people up. It was just like, oh, here's a suplex. Or here's a double choke slam. It's like, okay, yeah, we know. We, we know there's a match later. You don't need to show it 18 times over the course of the show. But yeah, there were, on on both days, Friday and Monday, there were very strange production decisions made. Uh, and I thought, I agree with you. Cesaro never cutting a promo when he went out, had a mic in his hand. Just as Reigns left doesn't mean he has nothing to say anymore. I thought that was strange. Uh, Heyman backstage insulted Cesaro, saying Rollins lowered himself in losing to him at Mania. He called Cesaro a joke, setting up the obvious match we knew was coming with Jey Uso in the main event. Cesaro later said he'd prove himself as a challenger to Reigns. Jey also cut a fiery promo backstage I thought was strong, and I'm glad mm -hmm. they gave him some mic time. They also showed to the production com comment, they showed the Cesaro UFO clip from WrestleMania five different times on a two-hour SmackDown show with commentary like overindulging on how impressive it was. I have no idea why they kept showing it. Maybe he's going to do it to Reigns and they're going to put it over as some huge athletic feat. It was really weird. And to me, like it came off like they were actively trying to kill my interest in it. Like I saw it on WrestleMania. It was cool. If he starts doing it occasionally in matches, it's cool and I'll pop for it. But the swing now is even a little bit tired. And if you go swing and UFO and he can't do anything that's unique and interesting, then you're to totally toning down what something that, look, Cesaro's not a good promo. So this is something that also makes him unique. I know that maybe in their brain, they were trying to put him over, but five times showing one move in a single show, I just thought it was total overindulgence and total overkill. Yeah, I mean, by no means, I think this was, any, this was an attempt to put him over big time by showing this amazing it was move. such a failure. It, it, the problem is they they go overboard with these things all the time with a face like they will just beat something into the ground and within two or three weeks, you're already kind of sick of it. That's what WWE typically does. They're going to do it with the UFO. I'm already they, sick yes. of it. When, when they feel like they have something, they go all in on it and run it into the ground very quickly. So, yeah, I hope they don't overdo it. But for one week, it's fine. Overall, they're clearly trying to make Cesaro a big deal which I think is really cool. And something I didn't actually uh, realize at the time uh, it happened when he first did the UFO, I was listening to Renee Young's podcast like a week ago or, or a couple days ago. And I guess Cesaro had had said to somebody at WWE, like when that clip came up of him trying out in WWE, they said, when do you want to do this move? He said he was saving it for WrestleMania. Yeah. He had yeah. never done that move. He was going to save it for WrestleMania. So that was really cool. I didn't actually know that at the time. 
I actually don't he, think they said that on SmackDown. He was saving it for a singles match at WrestleMania. Yeah, I, I don't think they said yeah. that on SmackDown. I think they should have. I mean, you know, you got to find ways to connect to these characters as people and not simply just, look, he did a cool move. So overall, you know, they're they're pushing Cesaro. That's good. But like, pull back a little bit. Yeah, I mean, showing it just five times is, is just so overdone. Uh, it was ridiculous. Show it three times. I'm not going to complain about it or mention it. Five is ridiculous. Uh, and then we got the match. Cesaro, Jey Uso, I believe it was in the main event. Cesaro showcased his strength and hit a fantastic avalanche gut-wrench suplex for a near fall. He then came back with an absurd springboard corkscrew European uppercut. The fact that I need four words to describe the moves is tells you how impressive they were. Jay got some offense before Cesaro came back for the finish. But as he was swinging Jay, Seth Rollins ran in to break it up and screamed that they weren't done with each other. I swear to you, dude, for a good 15 to 30 seconds, I thought it was Jimmy Uso, not Seth Rollins. Did you think <laughs> the same thing? I did not. I could tell by what he was wearing. I didn't even see what he was wearing. I just saw the hair and I was like, oh, my God, the Jimmy. Like, this is great. Uh, maybe we're just all into, you know, highly anticipating Jimmy come back, but. That's what I thought. Was yeah, happening. I know you're you're big on the Jimmy train, and it'll it'll probably I don't know happen what's happening. Where, where is this guy? He should be cleared by now. Like, I don't get it. I want I want this to be a faction, you know, not just a, a group, maybe a, a stronger group, not really just two people. And Heyman's a, a manager, right? We need a little bit more there. But anyway, match was exciting. Rollins breaking it up. We don't get a finish. But the big topic here is that Cesaro has basically been established yes. as the first or next challenger for Reigns, considering he beat Rollins. Fans love him, and he's not a real threat to actually take the title off Reigns, which is very important when you have that first challenger after WrestleMania. It's really the perfect match for Backlash, but I'm not exactly sure what they're doing with Rollins here, whether they're going to have Cesaro and Rollins fight at Backlash since it is WrestleMania Backlash and a rematch would make sense. Maybe they hold Reigns and Cesaro until Money in the Bank. If they do that, who does Reigns fight this month, or does he finally get a pay-per-view off? My guess is Cesaro and Rollins becomes the main event of SmackDown, either this upcoming week or the following week, and they still build to Cesaro reigns at Backlash, Jay interferes as usual, and then they get a stipulation match at Money in the Bank. That's how I think this is going to go. I'm curious what you think. Yeah, probably. I mean, clearly the decision here is to put Cesaro over big. They put him over Seth Rollins at WrestleMania. They put over his big move. You know, now now he's in, in now he's involved with Seth Rollins and Roman Reigns. And and so they're really, really trying to elevate him here. That's probably the path they'll end up taking in some form or another. But uh, he's going to get he's going to get that title opportunity. And, you know, when that happens, you hope you make the most of it. You know, Kevin Owens turned will look like a one month title shot into to three different matches. So, you know, hopefully we can get hopefully they can get Cesaro to that opportunity and see what he does with it. I also love the use of Cesaro and Rollins because it created an intersection between two angles, which is always fun. Yes. It also is the impetus for the first interaction between Reigns and Rollins on SmackDown, which is still something we have not seen considering when Rollins first came over, he was quickly, he left for paternity leave. So that interests me immensely. It could result in a Rollins face turn later this year, or it could be maybe a two-man power trip which, you know, we've, we loved when they did it with Austin and Triple H. We haven't really seen anything like that, you know, in, in a long time. It could also ultimately be nothing. Maybe they don't interact at all, or maybe they do and it's in passing and we pop for a moment, but then we don't see anything. But with Rollins and Reigns on the same brand, 
there's something that they're lacking faces necessarily, but he has gone through a significant number of people in extended programs. I do see an extended program with Cesaro coming up. I just think that with both of them on the brand, they're eventually going to have to interact sooner than later. Yeah, I mean, speaking of not having faces, I mean, you don't have Edge and Dan O'Brien on the show. So Cesaro right. is your biggest face on the show right now. And he, he's, he's, I'm sure that plays into the decision as well to not have Brian and Edge uh, on the show as well. So um, they're clearly going for this with Cesaro. So yeah. hopefully they see it through. And credit to them because, look, while I don't expect them to win the title, we never really said we needed Cesaro to be WWE champion or, or universal champion in this case. We just want him to get the opportunity. We want to see those main event ma- matches against a Rollins, against a Reigns, against guys of that caliber, Drew McIntyre. You know, we want to see him get those opportunities. There's a lot of guys who have challenged for titles and never won them. And they, but at least they were in the main event. And I think that's basically where I stand with Cesaro. And it's great. Uh, staying with the positive, which means staying with SmackDown. Uh, Bianca Belair had a victory party. The Street Profits hosted, which was obviously appropriate. They introduced the video package. I thought it was kind of chill inducing, to be honest. It was pretty good. Uh, Montez Ford gave Belair an epic ring call. She cut a pure babyface promo about believing in herself and fans finding their own EST within them. She then thanked Sasha Banks, said they made history together, and she was just getting started. They all hugged, and Belair told Ford they only wear gold in their house, which I think is pretty <laughs> funny and a good line. And he needed to get his job done in the tag team title match later in the show. Nicely done babyface segment. And Chris, I just think they all look and work really good together. It reminded me of when she debuted alongside them at WrestleMania basically a year ago. And I don't want her to be saddled with them and vice versa. She needs to operate on her own. But I did think it was an it was a very appropriate that for a victory party, and considering her husband did not come out on camera at WrestleMania, for them to do this on SmackDown. Yeah, yeah, it, it was exactly like when they debuted. But even when she debuted, she always held her own in the group. It was almost like a new day in the sense that everybody kind of mm-hmm. carried their weight in this group. It wasn't like she was tagging along with them. It wasn't like they were tagging along with her. So I like them together. Yeah, you don't want them together all the time. But to know that they've got her back from time to time, kind of like when when the Usos would have Roman Reigns back, back when he was a face back in the day, just like knowing that's there. Right. Is always cool. And and the celebration and the promo was good. I think it perfectly hit that balance between babyface celebration and kind of like cool and confident as well. Like like Bianca's not just Bianca's not, you know, what do you call it? White me babyface where it's just like, oh, I, I, fawning over the fans and everything and, and how lucky she is on all this stuff. There's a confidence there. She calls yes, herself the yes. EST. She is the best in this women's division. So she carried herself that way in the promo and in the celebration. I think it perfectly hit exactly what you want to do. And we'll get into raw later, but this is the complete op- this. This is how you crown a star after giving her a star making moment at WrestleMania. This is how you follow it up to remind people that this is a big deal. Not what happened with what raw did with Rhea Ripley, which we'll get to later, but this was great stuff from the street profits uh, and mm-hmm. Bianca. Right. Cocky and confident, but but thankful and appreciative at the same time. Yeah. And the good part with the entire thing is that Belair, like, she got her moment, like you said, but it wasn't interrupted. Like, they could have done this entire segment the same way and at the very end had Bailey's music hit. But they didn't do that. They didn't interrupt yes. the positive momentum that they had going with her 
just for the sake of creating her next feud. They said, you know what? We're not going to really worry about that this week. We're just going to kind of take one week and celebrate this big moment that people loved and allow them to enjoy it on SmackDown in case they didn't watch WrestleMania. Maybe it's the impetus for them to go and watch WrestleMania if they only watch on free TV. I just thought it was really, really well done. And then they followed it up with all that extra stuff that we're talking about. So backstage, you had Sasha Banks showing her scar and she really couldn't find any words to give her interview answers. So she just stormed off. It was good that they didn't face off again because it gave air in their potential feud if they go back to it. And I think it's going to continue. Then you had Bailey, who was immediately interviewed and she said Belair cried before the WrestleMania main event because she didn't think she could actually win. Then she challenged Belair. And I think this is the trap that WWE always gets itself in when they have new champions coming out of big events. Running through the biggest challengers right away. They did it with Drew McIntyre. Remember, Rollins, Styles were like his first two, and Lashley. Those were his first three opponents. All of those were longer feuds that should have happened at bigger pay-per-views. Instead, the longer feuds we got were Randy Orton and Dolph Ziggler for like two and a half or three months. As opposed to guys that you want to see two or three month feuds. Again, Styles, Rollins, guys like that. So now you have Bel Air and her first two challengers, it seems, are Banks and Bailey. And it's like, well, if you run through both of them quickly, then who do you have in October? Carmella or Natalia or Tamina? Like they're not deep enough and strong enough to do that. So to me, that was a struggle because once those top challengers get taken down, you're kind of stuck with the B level. Nevertheless, I thought Banks and Belair, uh, sorry, Banks and Bailey, both good segments backstage. Yeah, no, it, it was good stuff there. Bailey, it's good to see her, you know, kind of reestablishing herself after being left off of WrestleMania. You're, you're right. And, and that's exactly what they're not doing with Roman Reigns. You know, he's going into exactly. Cesaro. He's not refighting Edge or refighting Dan O'Brien or something like that. They're, they're going to let it breathe for a minute. So this is something that WWE often does is go right into the next big challenger because I feel like they sometimes think, you know, we don't know when we're going to have an opportunity to do that. Maybe somebody gets hurt. Maybe something happens. Maybe COVID's Build going the on. freaking storyline. Yeah. So they just, you they know? just, they want to keep giving it to you. It's like, it's like how we got the shield triple threat match at a at battleground. You know, that right. was the moment we got it. Cause sometimes, cause they've tried to do it before and people got hurt. And I think they've kind of, change their mind if we're just going to give you the big match every time it doesn't matter what the show is so and we got we got reigns john cena at like an equivalent like yeah backlash or battleground yeah or so yeah. so but the way you do it the way i would do it the way i the thing i don't think wrestling does nearly enough pretty much any company is having number one contender tournament something like just yes like that's that's a natural storytelling way to create a new opponent that doesn't immediately have to be treated as a blood feud. Like you, someone wins the number one contendership, like Bianca Belair won the Royal Rumble, and then you build on animosity from there. You don't need to start with that. It makes sense coming out of WrestleMania when you've had your biggest matches to basically do a reset, and you do that with a tournament, a battle royal, uh, whatever, a yeah. gauntlet match or something like that. So that would have been a way to, I think, kind of reset where, where Bianca goes next instead of immediately going after the top dogs again. Yeah, coming out of a major pay-per-view is when storylines should reset. Now, I know they're doing WrestleMania backlash, so they're keeping some of them going. Uh, that's fine. You can keep doing that. But WrestleMania should not feel like a, a speed bump. It should not feel like, oh, okay, this is the continuation uh, 
it should feel like it shouldn't feel like the apex of a feud. It should feel like the conclusion of a feud, basically. Yeah. And that is part of the problem with WWE's extended booking is they don't think far enough in advance and they get concerned to your point that sometimes they won't be able to have the matches they want at certain times for one reason or another. Uh, or they just say, hey, well, this is people want this now, so let's give it to them immediately, as opposed to planting seeds for something to happen over three or four months, tell a story, take them on a journey, and then pay it off at the end. But you're right. You pick your certain spots, like McIntyre going back after Lashley. I'm okay with that in theory. Uh, but, he, doing, but even there, but even there, he won that. He won, a match. He won that. Yeah. He won that match because they did a number one contender match. And, and doing the stuff with, we'll get to it, Charlotte and Asuka, it actually does make a little sense because of what transpired in reality, how sure. she explained it in her promo and all that. But for, and Reigns going with Cesaro, he was the guy who won the big SmackDown singles match on that show. That makes sense too. So those three all kind of work. This is one where you say, you know what? Banks, Bailey ran through the whole division. Banks basically ran through the entire division. Now you have a new champion. Let's start fresh. Because you don't want Banks immediately going after the title. You want her to earn that shot again, whether it's in a couple months at Money in the Bank or whether it's at SummerSlam or even down to the Royal Rumble in January next year. So you have to kind of think of it in those ways. But WWE sometimes gets too caught up in, oh, well, we just need to give the hot match right away. And it's something that I think they're going to fall into here with Bianca Belair, where she's going to probably beat the two best other women on the show and not have Io Shirai coming in to become that new contender she can look at down the line. They don't build for the future. And we're going to try to talk about it either at the end of the show or if not at the end of the show next week, the Steve Austin biography on A&E. He made this point crystal clear. WWE during his run did a great job of building up that next opponent. The Rock, Triple H, Mankind, one-on-one. He Undertaker, he always had someone big to go after. And then at some point, they failed him. And they stopped booking people well enough to become his next big opponent. They just worried about, hey, we have Austin. Let's concentrate everything on Austin. And that is the issue of today in WWE. They don't think long-term enough about taking that next guy and building him up. You saw it with Drew McIntyre two years ago. Even then, though, it was a short term. It was you know, a little bit before the Royal Rumble, won the Royal Rumble, then faced Brock at WrestleMania. It was four months, not bad. But they don't think long-term enough, especially when it comes to the women, to say, okay, Liv Morgan, she's going to be a contender in four months. She's going to challenge for the title. Let's give her enough wins over this period, over enough big people, where she's built up and gets that opportunity. And to their credit, it's something that NXT and AEW do exceptionally well. Yeah, and, and kind of separately on, on the Bianca Belair point, we don't need her beating the top dogs all the time. We need her beating anybody. That was the problem leading into the Sasha match was that she just was not racking up the wins. Like, like you got you, you to gotta give her, not and not on this first SmackDown, but in general, like give her a match next week against, you know, whoever's, I don't even know who's on SmackDown at this point. Just give her a match, have her look strong. Not a squash, Tamina, but Natalia, like, yeah, Ruby Riot. She's, she's got to have some of these matches where she just kind of racks up some wins. She still hasn't, she didn't do that in the buildup since winning the Rumble, and this would be a good opportunity to, to do it uh, without having to throw her into the next Sasha Bailey feud and stuff like that. Exactly. I mean, I know they want all their big champions on all their pay-per-views, but man, if they had, if they didn't, if they had three of the four major champions on each pay-per-view, that would give each feud rotationally a month to kind of work things out. 
And I just kind of wish they did that a little bit more. But uh, finishing up with this, just because it's tangentially related, we did have a SmackDown tag team title match. The Dirty Dogs defending against the Street Profits. Michael Cole called them the top dogs, I think, twice uh, before during the match. Angela Dawkins smoked Robert Roode, and the Profits then jumped outside and screamed into the camera for no reason when this guy's in the ring prone to be finished. So you want to talk about like weird production and weird storytelling decisions? They like ran outside to yell at the camera just so they could go to commercial. And then they could come back and finish the match. So again, that was another one of those things. Uh, Ford went on a huge run against Roode, hit a massive tope cannonball. Dawkins tagged in for the Spinebuster and Ford hit the Frog Splash, but Ziggler broke the fall. Ziggler then made a blind tag and hit Ford with the zigzag out of nowhere to retain the titles clean. The Dirty Dogs retaining the titles clean. This was an awesome match, dude. And it was a really smart finish. The champions need to keep going over clean now that they have finally been established. We thought they would drop the titles to a face team at WrestleMania. They didn't do that. Same thing they didn't do with Lashley, which is very smart. Keep establishing these guys. But I fully, fully enjoyed this match. Like a B plus, 3.5 star or something like that. I loved it. And I loved that the heels got a clean one. Yeah, and that's actually something uh, we'll talk about on Raw too. Between the SmackDown and this Raw, there were a couple. There, there were a couple instances where heels won clean, and that's good. That's how yes. you build up a heel. They can't always cheat. Like otherwise, they're they're not. They don't. You know, simply look strong. So, um, I keep thinking the Dirty Dogs are going to lose to Street Profits or somebody here pretty soon, and they keep not. So I keep being pleasantly surprised that they keep it going. So SmackDown. Tag team division continues to get a lot of things right over the last you know, two, three months. They really built it into something, you know, that's enjoyable to watch. We always complain about WWE breaking up established tag teams like heavy machinery, right? And then just putting random people together like Dolph Ziggler and Robert Root. But when you put those people together and you actually allow them to become a team, we saw it with the bar. They put the bar together. Everyone was like, they just have nothing to do with Sheamus and Cesaro. But they put them together. They gave them a name. Or, or they came up with a name. Um, they got tag team moves. They got matching gear. They got an entrance together. I don't think they ever changed music. I think they just used shame. They, they combined their music kind of. Um, but it just felt like a real team. And then they won multiple titles and had long title reigns. That's finally happening with the Dirty Dogs, where you had Ziggler and Rudin, and it was just like a matter of convenience that they were together. But now they're actually establishing them. And it's very bar-like, where you're saying, these guys can now be a fixture of the SmackDown tag team division and they work well together. They look good together. Their personalities mesh. It's great. So I'm a Dirty Dogs fan. I know some people don't like them for one reason or another, but you want that strong established team that the equivalent of the revival that WWE had for so long where you can then put the Mysterios over them. You can put the Street Profits over them and it's an accomplishment Mm -hmm. winning the title as opposed to just having them win off of a crappy tag team that barely holds the titles for a month. Yeah, SmackDown needed some established heel teams because Alpha Academy is, I guess they're heel now, but you know they've yeah. kind of gone back and forth. So they're really kind of carrying the heel aspect of this. And if you don't like them, you're going to like when they lose. And that's the point of professional wrestling. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's not like they're not bad wrestlers. They're not bad promos. They're not delivering you a bad product. You just don't like them. So then when they lose, you will like that they lost. And that's how it's supposed to work. It's perfect. And by the way, credit to WWE, because even though the tag team division has not really improved in terms of the way they care about it, it's never in the main event. You know, they don't feature it in a significant manner. They now have established tag teams again. 
Mm-hmm. I think there's four on SmackDown and five now on Raw. So I got to give credit where it's due. Yeah, did they break some people up unnecessarily? Yeah. But they actually put tag teams together and they're establishing them, giving them names and, and setting things in motion. And two of those somewhat newly established teams are actually the champions. So now you have all these quote unquote real teams or more established longer term teams able to go after the titles across both brands. That makes the divisions exciting because the theory is that you'll have rotational opponents, which is not something that we've had from WWE tag team in probably two years, I would say. So I got to give a shred of credit where it's due for that, even though the booking needs to be better. Okay, so that's SmackDown, relatively positive for the two main event topics from SmackDown. We'll go over to Raw, where it's a mixed bag for the main event topics. The rest of the show, Raw as a whole, Chris, I thought was terrible. Yes. But both of these main event topics, there were silver linings. And I think we'll kind of get to those as we talk about them. I actually want to start with the women. Uh, Charlotte Flair came out and cut a promo early in the show. I again thought from looking at her, she looked great and rejuvenated. She's not wearing the flowery Ric Flair robe anymore. Her eyes are darker. She has straight hair. I know that's just super. And what? I'm sorry. And shorter hair too. Shorter hair too. I know that's somewhat superficial, but it's not meant to judge her looks. It's meant to judge the look of the character. And because of that, I get a different persona from her when she comes out. And I think that's a really good thing. Flair said the women backstage hate her because they know she runs the division. Then she randomly said that people call her the opportunity, which has (laughs) never happened. No one has ever called her the opportunity ever. Uh, Flair also said that she could beat Asuka and Rhea Ripley together. I thought she was going to say, not only can I beat both of you, I've beaten you both at WrestleMania, which is the line. That is the storyline. For some reason, she didn't get to that. Asuka came out with a mic, but before she spoke, Ripley came out with a mic. Flair cut down Asuka about ending her undefeated streak at WrestleMania and kept interrupting. I'm glad they brought that back and kept interrupting her until Asuka finally snapped and said, I'll beat you, bitch. Now, WWE overuses bitch a lot, but Asuka, I think, should always be allowed to say it because it works when she says it. Yeah, no, it, 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 there's more of an emphasis. There's more yeah. of a, you believe I don't it. say shock value, but it, it, there's, it means something when, when she says it, definitely. All right. So then we got Asuka against Charlotte Flair in the main event of Raw, which I also appreciated that this was the main event. Ripley sat in a steel chair at the bottom of the ramp. There was some good wrestling. Flair botched a code breaker. I think she forgot the move was coming. She had a spear for a 2.8. Asuka kicked out of a spear, which is really good. And then did a knee bar over the middle rope. Asuka blind hopped. I think it was a natural selection attempt and got the Asuka lock on, but Flair rolled out of it. Charlotte then got the figure eight on, but Ripley pulled her arms out with the referee's back turned. Flair grabbed Ripley between the ropes and Asuka caught her blind with a crucifix pin for the one, two, three. Flair's shoulder was a little bit up, but it was kind of hidden by Asuka's arm. The official didn't call it. They didn't redo it. I'm okay with it, you know, going through. Uh, Charlotte went nuts after the loss, beat the absolute shit out of a male official. Two other officials came down, but she kept attacking the one guy over and over again until Raw went off the air. So this felt like it was going to be predictable as hell. And the interference by Ripley was indeed predictable as hell. But Charlotte losing her mind after the match and beating up a dude was a really nice twist And it continues this somewhat fresh character that we've seen from her over the last two weeks. It actually feels, Chris, like they are trying to change her in a similar way to the way they changed Bailey. Not as babyface to as much of a heel, but saying, hey, we are going to do a drastic shift in character for this person. All I would have really changed here 
is I would have had at the end Asuka catch her in the Asuka lock again and put her to sleep or use the Asuka lock and then get her shoulders down to get the pinfall instead of doing a crucifix pin, which we literally got earlier in the show. We're going to talk about it a little while later. So pick one, not two matches to do this. Other than that, the match was fine. Some botches. The storyline was predictable. But the turn, the change of character, I was all in for. I thought the end of Raw was great. Yeah, and roll-up finishes was a problem with this weekend of uh, wrestling matches. Um, distractions or otherwise. It was, it was a common thing you mentioned, the crucifix pin. There, there's... There's a lot that I like and a lot that I don't. And I think I like the Charlotte Oscar stuff. I don't like involving Rhea Ripley in this. It, it's not, you know, we just talked about it. Uh, Bianca Belair wins at WrestleMania. She gets a big celebration on SmackDown, cuts a great promo, confirm her as a star. Boom, that's it. In two weeks with Rhea Ripley, we've gotten a match with Oscar where she's beaten up at the end by Charlotte Flair. Then she interferes in a match and it's just we, like, I guess, is, is she a heel? We, we don't really know what she is. And it's kind of weird in this three person thing when Charlotte is clearly a heel. I really like what Charlotte's doing. The promos are great. The Oscar stuff is good. I feel like we don't need Ripley hanging around at the moment. Rhea Ripley should be doing something that makes her look awesome. And th- that's kind of where I think I fall on this is that there's good and that there's bad. Mostly that Rhea Ripley should be doing something else. There, there were two women's matches on Raw, I believe, and they both finished with distractions. Uh, so it's... And I think there was a roll-up on SmackDown. Yeah. In the yeah, one women's so match it's, on SmackDown. It's weird. I love Charlotte beating up the referees. You know, she got suspended by WWE and fined. I love that. I love kayfabe fines. I love kayfabe suspens- suspensions. They should do stuff like that more, more often. So really like... Charlotte and what she's doing, what they're doing with her. I just don't think Ray Ripley needs to be in this at the moment. Well, let's, uh, you know, explain what he's talking about there. So Charlotte was suspended indefinitely and fined $100,000 on Raw Talk, uh, which was quite well done with Adam Pierce running in and basically telling the host what the punishment was. I do think this has legs with Charlotte, you know, to go back briefly to what you said. Yes, Rhea Ripley is the forgotten part of this. The champion, the newly crowned champion on SmackDown is getting a celebration and they're going crazy for her and they're, you know, showing clips of her winning and all that. Whereas on Raw, the focus is now back on Charlotte. So there does deserve to be some criticism there. But what I will say is, unlike SmackDown, which was built up to be that moment, on Raw, Ripley was a replacement. Like this was not the booking that was originally planned. So we don't actually know what would have happened. If they were, you know, again, this was plan C. If it was Flair, Lacey Evans, the expectation was Flair was going to win. Flair, Asuka, maybe this is what would have happened. Maybe Asuka would have beaten Flair and Flair would have made this character turn anyway. Or maybe this is WWE, as they did with Roman Reigns, making the best out of a situation that didn't work out the way they initially planned it to. And actually figuring, hey, let's actually turn Charlotte. But what I would do if I'm booking this, Chris is I have Flair get a one-on-one match with Ripley and have Ripley beat her so she gets her win back from WrestleMania, you know, a year ago. And that sends Flair totally off the deep end, beyond what even happened here. And she goes ballistic, tears apart the set and shit, 
beats the hell out of a couple tag teams, referees, the announcers, whatever. Just go wild and psychotic. Maybe make her almost like a mad queen since she is the queen, kind of like in Game of Thrones. Just have her lose her, <laughs> her shit. Go absolutely nuts. Burn things down. That's the move I think they make with Charlotte is really, it's not even turning her heel because she's almost always a heel, but having her go psychotic. I think that's what I want to say. I think that's a good a good way to do it. And I think doing it via, I mean, they could do it now. Doing it via roll-up pin is a good way to set her off as opposed to losing clean or something like that because she's been frustrated that she got pulled. She's frustrated that she missed WrestleMania. And now she's frustrated that she loses via roll-up to, to Asuka. So... Uh, but I want to see I want to see Ripley beat her though. I don't want roll up bullshit. I want Riptide. I, I, I'm one, saying, two, but I'm I'm saying you can do roll ups in a way that looks smart and 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 um I don't know what the word is uh basically just a, a smart not 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 in like a tricky distraction way but like oh I got one up on you because of that and that drives her crazy. But now she's suspended, so who knows? So more we'll equivalent from to the riddle and, finish. More, that, more, more equivalent to the riddle finish is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that kind of thing where you can make someone look good with a roll because they got one got one on you. I, I can't figure out the word I'm trying to say. So Got one over on you is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, they, they they could be going to that now. I mean, obviously, she's suspended. So we'll see what happens well, yeah, I mean, in the coming weeks. Indefinite suspensions in WWE. I mean, yeah, I think... I'm, I think Charlotte is only the set that I can remember the second woman to be punished in this way in kayfabe. The other being Becky Lynch in that WrestleMania storyline yeah. where they needed to give some air to her feud with Ronda Rousey. Yeah. Um, the only other person recently I can remember where this happened, I think was Strowman, where they suspended him indefinitely for a while. Yeah, so, for attacking Adam Pierce or something like that. Yeah, and I think it was like one week, maybe. And sometimes it's not even any weeks. Like, it's, it's really weird the way they do it. But it is also strange that Flair came back after a five-week absence or however long it was, and now she's suspended again, right? Or, and suspended for the first time. So I don't know how this is going to transpire. If they do Ripley, Asuka, maybe at WrestleMania Backlash and Flair interferes in that, that means we get a triple threat at Money in the Bank. I, you know, I could see it happening that way. I'm not exactly sure. What I don't want, as long as Flair does not win Money in the Bank, I think we're going to be okay. Because <laughs> even if she does take the title off Ripley, She'll be such a heel for doing it, and people will really, really hate her. Yeah. That whoever eventually beats her will get a huge pop. So I'm not going to get too crazy about it, but I do have to say, despite the storyline being predictable, the end of Raw was really good and it popped me, and I was half surprised at what happened. And I think, again, we're going to criticize Raw heavily, and we already have a little bit, but credit where it's due for that. All right, moving on to the other big storyline on Raw Drew McIntyre. Bobby Lashley, I thought, preparing for a WrestleMania backlash showdown. Now, we did not see Lashley throughout their show at all. A report did come out that some talent were left home for COVID precautions. Doesn't mean they have it, just that, you know, maybe they were, there was contact tracing or they were nearby someone, whatever the case. Lashley was not on Raw. So McIntyre opened Raw calling out MVP, Mace, and T-Bar. MVP told McIntyre to expect the unexpected. And I thought he was watching Big Brother for a second. That's a tagline for that show. MVP said Lashley downsized her business and Lashley beat McIntyre one-on-one. So he had absolutely zero reason to recruit those guys. As McIntyre approached MVP, Mason T-Bar attacked him out of nowhere with another double choke slam, and then walked past MVP to the back without interacting with him. They were then interviewed in gorilla position and basically said a bunch of nothing. 
McIntyre demanded a handicap match, but Adam Pearce said he needed a tag team partner. Then 20 minutes after that backstage segment, which I could have sworn ended with McIntyre being told he needed to find a tag team partner, that a handicap match would not be booked, they announced a handicap match anyway. I felt like I was in a fever dream watching this entire Raw, and this storyline was one of the main reasons why. It was just such total shit. Up until this point, it didn't necessarily get much better, but to hear, I'm like, what the hell are they doing? Yeah, I, when the Charlotte stuff, when, when Charlotte cut her promo uh, shortly after that, my my first thought was, oh, this should have led off the show, especially since we got Oscar Charlotte as the as the I'm sorry, as the main event. But then I realized, you know, Raw went off the air with this mystery attack. Why did they attack Drew McIntyre? So it made sense that you, I think you had to start this episode of Raw with mm-hmm. that because that was that was a cliffhanger you left us on. So that that was fine. It was. Not something I looked forward to at all. Um, I didn't really care for it. I understand why they did it and why they laid it out the way they did. I just I just didn't care because I don't care about retribution. And, just, there's, and, and there's no Bobby Lashley to be seen at the moment. It just felt like the first like hour and a half of Raw was last week's show that someone edited. And they said, okay, yeah. let's change A to B and C to D and E to F. And okay, that's this week's Raw. Like, it just felt extremely lazy. And yeah, I understand maybe they were down some personnel, but you can still do some of these segments and make them different and interesting. McIntyre is attacked backstage by these guys on his way to the ring. So he doesn't even get a chance to speak. Then he comes out later and cuts a promo. They don't show up, so Pierce comes out. They have, you know, there's, you can make the show feel different and do the same storylines and, and, and similar stuff. It was just ridiculous. So I'm watching here. And at this point on the show, I'm watching and I'm like, I can't believe they broke up Retribution, but they're using the names still and they're wearing the masks, the same Retribution theme music. It was really pissing me off. So eventually we get the handicap match. McIntyre versus Mason T-Bar. MVP is watching from gorilla position. McIntyre took a real big beating on a double team. Uh, and eventually there was a DQ and they both ganged up on him two on one in the corner. I'm glad they didn't give McIntyre the Super Cena booking, which I thought is what they were going to do. But then Braun Strowman comes down for the save. Despite WWE for an entire week, the only thing they had really promoted for Raw for most of the week, and they eventually announced Charlotte and Asuka, was Strowman versus Orton first time ever one on one. And they clearly gave us a storyline for that last week when Orton hit Strowman with the RKO. So they went away from that early in the show, which we'll talk about later, which made me think, Chris, that Strowman basically, uh, you know, for COVID reasons or for whatever other reason, injury got called out and scratched from the show. But then they have Strowman come into this match. So then you have, of course, and it's typical WWE booking, you come back from the commercial break and it is Braun Strowman and Drew McIntyre against Mason T-Bar. I didn't even care that this was because <laughs> that's normally what I want to see. But the booking and the entire show was so bad that I couldn't even enjoy the fact that it was big meaty men slapping meat, be flying in the ring the whole nine yards. McIntyre got the hot tag. He ripped Mace's mask off. So Mace slapped him. And then McIntyre went like apoplectic and beat the shit out of Mace with his own mask. Then Braun ripped off T-Bar's mask, hit him with it, and the heels actually won 
by disqualification. So somehow, Chris, despite me hating everything that preceded this, I actually like the finish because it accomplished something for a change. Think about how sad it is, though, that, hey, the two big retribution guys lost their masks is a silver lining for the main event storyline on a major TV show. Yeah, I, I mean, the biggest thing you want out of any wrestling show or any wrestling segment is just I want something to happen. And for much of Raw with this story, nothing happened. And then at the very end, we got to finish where something happens. We oh, they're unmasked. Oh, they technically won the match. So maybe some something can move forward with them. I still don't like the retribution stuff. I still don't like that the Hurt Business broke up, but something happened. There's something next week I go, oh, I wonder what T-Bar and Mace will be doing next week now that they are unmasked. So they they stuck the landing, but it was not a, a good overall show, story, segment, whatever. So yeah, I did enjoy the finish. Yeah, I just, I, I really, it was McIntyre beating the shit out of Mace that I liked. <laughs> that was really the key. Like he rips the mask off and Mace like gets aggressive rather than hiding his face like a luchador. And those are different because luchador, yeah. it's about legacy and tradition. This is just bullshit, you know, garbage mask. Um, but rather than hiding his face and then getting pinned or some bullshit like that, he stood up to Ma- Drew McIntyre. And he's like, okay, now you see my face. Let's go. Yeah. And McIntyre's like, all right, I'm going to beat the shit out of you with your own mask. So I actually enjoyed that. And I thought it was pretty inventive and unique and good that WWE did that. Now, obviously, Chris, I hope they drop the names as well as get rebranded. That would be nice. I hope next week there's a promo, even if it's taped, even if it's scripted, I don't really care, backstage where they say, I'm this and I'm that and we are blah, blah, blah. They actually cut a uh, social media promo where he he being Mace, I think it was tongue in cheek, just him having fun because it was social media but he kind of hinted that they might be called the Titan Towers. <laughs> well, really? And I gotta say, I gotta say, like you may laugh, I would love that. Because it's so tongue-in-cheek, WWE, historical, right? It's like, why have they never called the team that before? It makes total sense. They are Titans. They are huge. So I don't know if, I don't think they're going to call them that. I think he was just having fun on his promo. But I kind of like that if they do. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, Retribution, they cut some good social media promos even when they were a whole whole faction. And those just rarely made it to the show. So we'll see. I don't want to get too far ahead of the opportunities here for, for these guys. Because I, I frankly, WWE has earned no benefit of the doubt whatsoever that they'll know what to do or do it properly with any of those guys. So uh, we'll see. If they're the Titan Towers... Fine. I, I mean, I'm interested to see what happens next. That that I am interested in. I actually care. But yeah, I'm not like, I'm not going to yeah. get too far out of myself into thinking what this could be because Raw does not deserve that benefit of the doubt. They're unmasked. They're big. They're athletic. Mace looked pretty good in the ring. Dio Madden. Uh, so I'm just curious and ho- I'm hopeful is really what it is. I have, I have hope that these guys who were saddled with dog shit are not going to be saddled with dog shit much longer. That's really what it stems from. Yeah. And, and last but not least, before we move out of this, I really like that they're referring to Bobby Lashley, not as the almighty Bobby Lashley, but the almighty WWE champion. I didn't notice they were doing this. I rewatched WrestleMania night one. I saw that's how they announced him to the ring. I noticed that they keep saying it. 
um, on the match card graphics on Raw, and I think MVP keeps referring to him at that in that in that manner. It's really cool billing to be referred to as the Almighty WWE Champion, and it's cool that they're propping up Lashley in that way. I have to say, yeah, no, that th- th- they're treating him like a big deal. They have, I mean, they have since he won the title. They've done a good job, um, and they continue to. So I just hope he's able to get back, you know, soon with whatever they're dealing with. Now, two more topics here on the main event. We're almost in an hour into the show. We're still in the main event. Uh, Pat McAfee joined SmackDown as their analyst alongside Michael Cole on Friday. Now, we initially thought it might be Samoa Joe. We'll explain in the final part of the main event why that wasn't the case. Uh, but McAfee joins, and I have to say, first of all, I love that the third word he said on television on Fox, was wrestling. What WWE doesn't say, but literally the third word out of his mouth was wrestling. It popped me. But in all seriousness, McAfee was quite good on the show. We did get a message from Bob at PunkRHS2003, who basically said, it showed that McAfee is a true fan and how much that actually helps on commentary because he was able to put the pieces of the storylines and the matches together without needing a script, without being scripted and and having all of that in front of him. And I think he nailed it there. McAfee's a gifted speaker. I mean, he has an extremely popular radio show and he's on ESPN's College Game Day. This was a coup for WWE because he's a fresh voice, clearly has his own following and actively loves the product. He was literally standing on his feet behind the announce table during two of the biggest matches on the show, calling the action live, watching it in the ring instead of watching the monitor which is what these guys are told to do. McAfee and Cole played well off each other. It's the perfect pairing and the right show for it to be on. I really can't sing his praises enough. We talked about Adnan Verk. He still, this week was rough. We said, we're going to give this guy a month or two. And McAfee it needs the same time. You know, I'm not judging him today. I'm going to judge him after a couple months of doing this. But for a debut, he crushed it. And I think he deserves a lot of credit. Yeah, no, he, he was great. I, I know some people think he's over the top, don't like to stick, whatever. You cannot deny that the guy loves this stuff. And I know him and Adnan Verk are playing two different roles, but it's incredibly clear one of them knows wrestling and one of them doesn't. And McAfee, like that that, uh, listener just said, he can fill in the gaps. He can connect the things. He can do all the little things that make everything flow better. He puts the talent over. He plays a heel in the moments he wants to be a heel. He he helped. Um, I don't remember whose promo it was, but someone blamed Mike. It was Charlotte, I think, maybe was blaming Michael Cole for something, and all the people someone was blaming. And and McAfee was like, "Yep, yep, it's Michael Cole." <laughs> it was it was funny, and I think there's a ton of potential here for for what he can can do moving forward. So Adnan Verk was better this week. I will say slightly. He was, he was better. He was more into it. He still made some mistakes, still is trying to pick it up. He was better. He's not to the level he needs to be, but he did improve from week one to week two. And it's just like if you're going to hire an announcer for Raw and, you know, you're thinking about professional broadcasters, you think about like Gus Johnson, right? Or you think about. I, I can't even, I, you, I could go down you need list, someone. Who, you need someone who, I love someone who's really into what they're watching. They love Energetic. what they're doing. Yeah, yes. it, it, it sucks when you watch a, a Division Two football game and the commentators don't act like they care that they're there. If, if you have someone who loves what they're doing, that comes off. That's why I still like Dick Vitale. Even though his analysis isn't any good, 
He's so happy. And it makes me happy to be watching what's on my screen. And that's what you get from Pat McAfee. Yeah, like I'm a Knicks fan. I listen to Mike Breen. He's just so energetic. Marv Albert when he was doing it, right? So energetic on the call. Again, Gus Johnson, a good example. Baseball announcers are not the guys to call wrestling. It's just, it's not the right fit. So look, maybe he'll get it. Maybe he'll find some passion and love for it. But to the the legitimate criticisms that some fans have already, again, I'm holding out full criticism. I'm giving the guy like two months before I really like we evaluate him, right? But the criticism I think is fair is he doesn't exude energy and he doesn't really seem to give a shit. And I, that is not, someone should not be learning on the job to this degree. If, if they trained on 205 Live for a while and, and then they're like, you know what? We got to bump this guy up. He has is, he is something. Let's, let's put him, throw him in the deep end and, and let him swim. That's okay. But they just put him in the deep end without him even having a swimming lesson. And it's just like, it just doesn't feel like the right fit. But again, yeah, the, holding the, it out. The, 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 you would hope the enthusiasm will come once he's more comfortable. And the knowledge. Yeah, yeah. once he's knowledgeable of the storylines or the wrestlers of the things, it'll be easier to be confident because you know what's going on. And he just doesn't have that at the ground level like Pat McAfee does. So yeah, we'll give him some time. One other thing I love about the Pat McAfee situation in the setup is that SmackDown is a two-man booth, and that makes it so much easier for these commentators to connect with each other, create a rapport, and then you connect with them as a viewer because you don't have to think, oh, wait, who's talking? That's a problem with what's going on on Raw is that they, they often sound alike, uh, and there's three of them. It's hard to you, – you don't really instantly recognize who is who, and you do on SmackDown, and you do especially with Pat McAfee. I think Cole and McAfee already kind of have a, have a good – chemistry going there and i'm excited to see where it goes um big fan of two-man boots and i think that's one reason why smackdown just has been a better show mcafee's also just exceptionally fresh like when when cory graves first started on the main roster i mean he was really good in nxt when he first started on the main roster he was a different voice and what's happened to him over time is he re he's really tried to lean heavy into being a heel and on top of that he's gotten like homogenized a little bit by wwe and what they want him to do yeah. Pat, to me, does not strike me as someone who's going to get coached up in that similar manner. It seems to me like he's going to be someone who, to many degrees, will always be himself. So having that on what is clearly now, and it's not, not like there's even an argument these days, SmackDown is clearly the A show. They clearly have the A announced team right now. It's not even, it's night and day compared to Raw. It is just that much better of a program with him on it than it would have been if they just kept Corey Graves on there. And I, I am not at Corey Graves hater necessarily, but when Samoa Joe was on commentary, Graves was the quote unquote worst of the color guys across the three shows. And now he's more needed because he's with Adnan Virk. So they actually need his expertise and need his voice. And I hope that helps Corey kind of improve and kind of break out of this character that he's almost been playing for the last three or four years. Uh, lastly, here in the main event, before we move on, I did an entire podcast about WWE's surprise releases last Thursday. It was an instant reaction to it. You can go back and listen to the entire show. But Chris was not on that podcast. He was beginning a mini vacation. Good for him that he got away. The one thing I did leave out of that release conversation is Mojo Raleigh was fired. After I taped the podcast, I thought I had waited long enough for all of them. He was the 10th that was released. There's not really much to say about him. He was only employed as long as he was, let's be honest, because of the Rob Gronkowski connection. He has energy. He 
has something in the ring, some spark, some personality, but it's nothing that WWE was going to utilize. So I totally get that, you know, along with some of the other releases. The other thing is I saw a single report about this. I don't know whether it's accurate, but it sounds like it makes a lot of sense. And that is that Samoa Joe reportedly told WWE he wanted to wrestle, but their doctors wouldn't clear him. And that to me softens the blow of the release. I wonder if he kind of said, hey, if you're not going to use me in the ring, release me and let me go somewhere else. He's not talking right now. So we don't know that. But it does worry me whenever WWE won't clear someone and that person's like, well, I'll go somewhere else and wrestle. It's like, well, WWE didn't clear you for a reason. They're looking out for your best interest. They clearly would prefer to have you in the ring than not. So, you know, I don't know what's going to transpire there. We'll see. But Chris, on the releases overall, I don't know if you had anything to say about them. Again, I talked about this at length. You can go back and listen to our show. We did two episodes last Thursday. One is specifically on the WWE releases. But if you did want to say anything or talk about anyone individually, this is a good opportunity for you to do so. Yeah, no, I, I listened to it and, and you did a good job, I think, laying it all out. The, the Samoa Joe thing, you figure there had to be something along the lines of either he wants to wrestle and they won't let him, or if he's only going to be commentary and he's maybe he's being paid like a wrestler and they didn't they wanted to pay him less if he's just going to be a commentator or something like that. I, I, I don't know. We don't know. I know Chelsea Green and I think Mickey James have kind of spoken about their situation and, and everybody's been pretty thankful for, for what was happening. It, you laid it out well that people like Chelsea Green and the Iconics, the fact that you couldn't figure it out with them is, is really kind of an indictment of what they do. Um, they say budget cuts. It's not really budget cuts. I think, I mean, WWE is always letting people go and bringing people in, in NXT. So it's just, it's, it's kind of the way you look at it. Um, nothing super surprising outside of Samojo and the Iconics, I think. Um, and it sucks. You know, I, I know this is kind of the year when, when this stuff happens, this is the time of year when this stuff happens, there's no longer a pandemic. Thankfully there are other wrestling organizations going on. So hopefully these people can find work in, in, in that kind of sense. Um, so, yeah, I think it's kind of my thoughts on the whole thing. Now, we have produced a lot of episodes of Getting Over for You recently, and some of them have been long. This one is getting a little long. So we're going to try to do a speed round with everything else that went down on Raw and SmackDown. Some stuff we'll talk about a little bit longer, but most of it we're just going to try to run through, give you some opinions and move on. The big thing, though, I do want to spend a little bit of time on at least is this Randy Orton, Matt Riddle thing that popped out of nowhere. Uh, this week on Raw. So Randy Orton's backstage promising for some reason, he's still talking about The Fiend. He'll never be seen or heard from again as long as he's around, he being Orton, and no one could have done what he's done at WrestleMania. Riddle showed up circling Orton in his scooter and suggested they team up as RK Bro. Orton turned and walked away as Riddle started singing his own theme song. I thought that was really funny shit. And I'd also love them as an odd couple tag team. I think that would totally rock. But anyway, uh, Orton told Pierce he was disrespected and didn't know Riddle's name, but demanded a match with that guy. As I said earlier, they promoted Strowman for an entire week and just scratched it Monday night to change their plans out of nowhere. So we get the match. Randy Orton against Riddle. Riddle locked in the bromission four times until Orton rolled outside, caught the punt kick and slammed Riddle first into the ring apron and then obliterated him like he was a Singh brother through the announce table. Orton stomped on Riddle's bare foot a bunch and legitimately hurt his own shoulder on a power slam. They beat the shit out of each other, and the camera did a great zoom on Orton's chest, which was beat red and totally bruised from Riddle. Orton hit a superplex, and production gave us a great replay of that as well. 
Riddle caught Orton with a great triangle choke over the ropes, but Orton hit the draping DDT, and I was ready for Orton to hit the RKO and win. But instead, Riddle countered the RKO with a crucifix pinning combination and got the win. I loved everything about this from start to finish the backstage segment all the way until the end of the match. Orton sold like absolute hell for Riddle. He took a ton of punishment. I think he actually worked through legit pain to make sure the match got finished. Obviously, I I hope the shoulder is okay. And ultimately, he took the L for a younger guy, putting him over just like he did for Keith Lee a few months ago when he debuted. Respectable veteran move. Riddle got a ton of clout from beating Orton. I think commentary called it the biggest win of his career. I know he won the United States Championship, but I do think this was the biggest win of his entire career so far in WWE. Plus, it was a damn good match, like 3.25-ish stars, a B, something along those lines. It was easily top to bottom, this storyline, this match, the backstage shit. This was the best part of Raw on Monday night. Uh, I don't think it was the best part. I I thought the Charlotte stuff was better, but this was good. It was fresh. It felt different, and we don't get that often on Raw. And two weeks in a row now, seeing... Randy Orton address MVP, seeing Randy Orton address uh, Matt Riddle feels new. It feels fresh. I mean, we've had a year of Randy Orton essentially only interacting with The Fiend and Alexa Bliss, Drew McIntyre, and Edge. It's basically what he's done for almost a year now. So it's it's nice to see Orton doing new things. And the match was great. The match was fun. It's Cool that a guy like Riddle gets that surprise roll-up, get one over on somebody, and, and you don't look weak for losing that way. You you can look strong winning in a roll-up like that. So this was really well done from everybody involved. I thought so as well. I just I was a big fan of it, and we got a lot of people who DM'd us, so I'm not going to read you uh, all of your names individually, although I will give a shout-out to Mitchell at Mitchell Hawks, H-A-W-K-E-S-5, who I think is a first-time DMer. Would you like to see Orton and Riddle as a tag team? Hell yes, I would like to see Orton and Riddle as a tag team. Now, I don't think we're going to get them because as we did mention, there was now five tag teams on Raw. So I think this was a tease, but a year from now, six months from now, if they don't have anything to do, if stuff shifts around, would I be down for this? Yes, I think they'd be an incredible odd couple tag team. I would mm-hmm. absolutely love to see it. Yeah, and, and coming out of The Fiend, getting Orton into a comedy thing would would be a good... Um, it would be nice, yeah. It'd be something else. A little bit of a transition. Uh, moving over to SmackDown, Sami Zayn knelt in the ring and said Logan Paul's mind was poisoned by Kevin Owens, WWE fans, and executives. He kept ranting. KO then hit the ring, apparently to address him, and they went to commercial. And we talked about production earlier in the show. It's a little thing, but it matters. They should have had Zayn pull a Chris Jericho and rant through the entire commercial. You come back, he's still ranting. Then KO's music hits, he comes out, they get into it. They completely broke up the flow of the segment. Then we come back. And there's randomly a WrestleMania rematch between the two for no reason. They just said Adam Pierce approved it. But earlier in the show, he couldn't just approve the Roman Reigns Cesaro match, the challenge that was made. Anyway, we get Owens and Zayn. Owens got a few near falls. Zayn kept rolling outside to avoid finishers. He raked Owens' eyes late and then took a purpose countout uh, finish. Unlike on Raw, commentary sold this as cowardly. On Raw, they said it was smart that Mandy Rose and Dana Brooke did it. KO pulled Zayn off the ramp, hit a stunner back in the ring to end the segment. Considering he hit the stunner anyway, I'm not sure why they avoided a clean finish. He basically went over just like he normally would, but it was good action. This didn't really do much for me. It felt more like a time filler than anything else. Yeah, it it was 
it was fine. I mean, these two are great to watch in the ring. Great to fill some time. Didn't really go anywhere else other than that. Sammy's promo was good. So, yeah, it was kind of out of nowhere and surprising, but it was perfectly fine filler. Back on Raw, I guess we're going to go back and forth here. Uh, Sheamus met with Pierce backstage. So we finally see the United States champion on TV after a week. Pierce said Sheamus should consider respecting the legacy of the title and holding open challenges with it. He said he would do it, but he wasn't going to be John Cena and automatically put the title on the line every single time. Later, he said in a promo he would be a fighting champion. And he did say that he would do an open challenge here and there. Humberto Carrillo answered this challenge, but Sheamus didn't even allow the match to start. He just absolutely murdered him at ringside and then hit a bro kick. Sheamus berated him afterward. The only thing I could think the entire time is, hey, at least it's not Ricochet. Yeah, you know, you you mentioned earlier about Bianca's promo not getting interrupted. I thought Sheamus was cutting a great promo here, and I was annoyed that it got interrupted by music. I I think you could have just had him do the promo give you like 10 seconds of silence as we wait to see who's going to come out and then you get music and then you go. So they do WWE goes overboard with music interruptions when someone's doing a promo. Like every week you get this multiple times. I thought uh Sheamus should have been allowed to finish what he was saying, you know, as the champion, kind of talk about it and then go from there. So little little thing but like, you know, we saw it on SmackDown where, you know, those kinds of things can have have an effect. Little things absolutely matter. Now, moving back to SmackDown, uh, Apollo Crews, the new Intercontinental Champion, cut a promo backstage, standing with Commander Aziz, saying all of Nigeria was celebrating his win, and Biggie was unable to be at SmackDown because he was so injured. He introduced Aziz officially and said anyone trying to step to him would be annihilated with the Nigerian nail, which is that finisher that he used on Biggie in that match. Also, unlike Raw, they got the new champion on TV right away. This wasn't particularly special but they did get him on where Sheamus had to wait a week. The one thing I'm going to say about this is I like the idea of Cruz having a guy have his back, a big guy, especially since he's not that big, despite him looking very strong and and muscular. But WWE is randomly like starting to wade into this era of characters that they've largely avoided for the last, you know, 25 years or so. There's Commander Aziz, right? Yeah. There's the Viking Raiders that are basically Vikings. Um, there was someone else on Raw that I was thinking. I mean, the, the idea of the Fiend and Alexa Bliss and the characters and the doll, that's a little bit darker and more new age. So that's okay. But, you know, it's in the similar mind where there's these really unbelievable, fantastical type of characters. Why is a Nigerian commander you know, going to be in WWE. And there's other examples of this as well that are just honestly not popping into my head at this very moment. And I just keep thinking about it like, like Mason T-Bar, like guys like that, right? Yeah. I just keep thinking about it and I'm like, why are they doing this? Why does this guy need to be Commander Aziz? Why can't he just be Aziz? And why can't he wear all black or the Niger- things that are in the Nigerian flag or Nigerian colors? Why is he wearing a a commander jacket that's clearly too small for him and carrying this stick that Apollo, the first time he brought it, they used the spear on top. And then people said, well, that may be a little stereotypical. So they turned it around and now there's just this huge globe on top. Why is he carrying it? Why is he named Commander Aziz? Why is he wearing this jacket when they could have introduced him as more of a normal guy 
along the lines of Omas. I just think it's weird that they're forcing this down our throats. Yeah, it, it's very much, you know, the new generation type of stuff. You go back to the early mid 90s in, in WWF and, you know, you, you mentioned the, the Austin documentary is really Steve Austin who kind of brought them out of that um, in, in a sense. So, yeah, it is kind of weird. They do that. They're clearly going toward more muscle, you know, bodyguards, big men. There, there are a ton of really talented big men on the main roster right now. And I understood. Wait a minute. Did you say big men? You know it. Exactly. So there's a lot of opportunity for, you know, meat slapping in the future here. But it's it's weird to put certain gimmicks on those guys, like you said, like Retribution, like Commander Aziz. I, I understood leaning into the Nigerian part of uh, uh, of Apollo Crews because of family history and, and wanting to find an edge. He's talking about him being royalty, but he's not coming out wearing a crown. He's not, you know coming out on a on a chair with people lifting. He's not leaning it into it that much. To, to call Aziz Commander Aziz was weird. He could just be, you, I mean, you could just make him the Omos of SmackDown. They're on well, think about, think about Diesel. It's like, it's like, this is my bodyguard, Diesel. This is my yeah. bodyguard, Aziz. Yeah. That's all you really need. That's all you have to say. Yeah, exactly. It, you it, can it, sell him. You can say, hey, he was part of the Nigerian Elite Command and he was... Excommunicated yeah. from it or yeah. put in exile, and I've adopted him and brought him to America. That's yeah. like, that's really all you need to do. Yeah, you can do. Yeah, exactly. It's it's an example of like putting putting a backstory behind it, but not kind of again beating you over the head with it by him wearing this type of stuff. So yeah, it feels like mid nineties, early nineties, you know, WWF type of stuff. It's it's exceptionally strange the way they're doing that across both brands. It's not overdone yet but you're starting to kind of see it seep in a little bit. And it's like, what are they going to do next? Like turn Otis into a literal um, construction site bulldozer <laughs> operator, right? Like, and that's what they would have done in the nineties in yeah. the early nineties. So it's really weird. But speaking of Otis, uh, we had Otis against Rey Mysterio in a singles match commentary really sold the size and strength advantage for Otis with the tail of the tape. Otis missed his new bulldozer splash finisher. Mysterio hit a six one nine and chose an avalanche crucifix slam and pinning combination instead of the frog splash for a clean win. I love the finish because you don't want Mysterio going over Otis with a regular cover, but at the same time, you really don't want Mysterio losing to Otis and getting his ass kicked by him again. I thought this was a really short, really nice piece of business that did its job to continue the feud. Yep. You got two very different guys. You're allowing Otis to show off his strength, and he also loses to the quickness of Mysterio, who's a former world champion. This was... Tremendous. Short, sweet, to the point, exactly what it needed to be. This is a good example of how you can do a singles match out of tag teams, but not make it feel like you were just running it back again. You can you can make things feel interesting, and that's what it did. SmackDown continues to get these kinds of things right. So obviously, Chris just had a visit, who I hope doesn't visit us anytime soon, is Lily. Uh, Alexa Bliss showed photos of herself growing up with Lily, always being there as her doll and told the story about breaking a girl's arm over some ice cream as a little kid. Then she said Lily didn't like The Fiend and doesn't like any of them, I guess meaning the women in the division, either. There was nothing new here, really. It was basically the same thing as last week, a little bit of a continuation. I don't even know what there is to say. I guess one of my concerns is that 
Bliss does to the women's division, what The Fiend did to the men's division. And they put the title on her and then it becomes a whole issue. As long as they don't put the title and get that involved, I guess I'm still really interested in it. But I was way more interested in The Fiend with Bliss than I am Bliss in this character on her own. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I mean, I like Alexa Bliss in what she's doing. I don't think this Lily stuff, I, yeah, I do not care not for necessary. this. I do not care for this at all. You've basically got two fiends on the same show now. So that's the other thing. I, I mean, I'd much rather see a Bray Wyatt Firefly Funhouse than a Lily, a Lily thing. I, I don't I don't know where this is going. Right. The Firefly Funhouse is entertaining, tongue in cheek. Yeah. There's fourth wall breaking. This is just kind of creepy for creepy sake, and it's not even necessarily that great. Especially but- when you do, especially when there's no known target. At the moment, we're right. just kind of it's waiting aimless. to see if something yeah. happens. I agree. It's totally aimless right now. Staying with Raw, we got Ms. TV with Maurice. They aired a Bad Bunny interview in Spanish, which they should do more, by the way, with foreign language stars. Mm-hmm. Allow the interview to be in their foreign language and show subtitles. They're willing to do it for Bad Bunny. They should do it for Oscar. They should do it for whoever. Ms. TV was basically another Raw repeat from last week with Maurice on there to promote their TV show. This time, John Morrison was not there. We don't know why. Maybe he was one of the people who was unable to attend Raw. Uh, they made out with each other and then got champagne and there was pyro. Damien Priest came out, insulted Jake Paul and said Miz was cheating last week. You showed it, clips of it, I should say. Priest insulted Miz in Spanish. Maurice responded in French and gave him a match tonight before throwing champagne in his face. This to me, the Miz TV part was a totally dead segment. Uh, Damien Priest versus the Miz was the match. Maurice distracted early, giving Miz a run. The distraction later led to a near fall, just like last week with his foot on the ropes. This time, Miz only got his feet on the second rope instead of the third rope. Priest was able to kick out. Then he immediately hit hit the lights for the win. And I think that's a big win for him. He beat a two-time WWE champion clean right in the middle of the ring. My guess is if he's cleared, we get Morrison next week. I don't think they'll ever do a tag team match. Maybe they do another handicap. I'm not sure, but I like this as an interim feud for Priest. The assumption for me is they're building him up to eventually go after Sheamus and maybe even take the US title off of him but it's good they're continuing to roll with Priest. I also really like, Chris, that after the match, he immediately gets redressed back in the gear that he wears down for his entrance. I just think that's kind of fun and different that no one else really does. Yeah, that, that's a good little thing there. Th- this was fine. I you know, I really thought coming out of WrestleMania and even in the talk about it afterward that you know Bad Bunny was a big hit and everything, but I, f- I felt like Damian Priest really got overshadowed. Like I was surprised. WWE didn't put him over more to kind of get that rub from Bad Bunny. So these last two weeks are kind of getting back on track with Damian Priest, um, which is a good uh, good way to go. Where it's going to go, I'm not sure, because you kind of figured the Miz match was the the ultimate um, thing. Uh, the other thing, I don't, I don't know if you mentioned it or not, but the Bad Bunny concert is uh, is sold out. Uh, the, the, the tour that he announced All is already dates. sold out, which yeah. is pretty wild. I'm sure WWE loved that. And frankly, I, I thought the Miz kind of did this, but he could have leaned into it even more in the promos. Basically say, yeah, Bad Bunny sold out uh, his his tour. He's a sellout. He left you. I'm here for you, the fans. I'm not going to leave. Basically do the Cena rock thing <laughs> and, and, and try to basically say, I'm the good guy here because I'm the one who stayed and I'm going to keep wrestling while he left you. I uh, w- would have been a, uh, a fun twist on that. The only other thing I wrote down in my notes here was that champagne or whatever that they were drinking that was apparently quite 
uh, bad, according to Damian Priest. I got to say, Reginald would not have let that happen. He wouldn't have. Uh, where the hell is Reginald, by the way? Good, good question. We haven't seen him since since uh, pre-Mania now. I mean, it's just he didn't show up at Mania. He hasn't been on the two weeks after. They mentioned him at least, which we'll talk about momentarily, but he's gone. Like, I, I just don't know what happened to him. Uh, moving on, staying with Raw. A couple more things on Raw, then we'll get to the final conversation, which is the women's tag team, everything that's happening there. Uh, Kofi Kingston fought Elias in a singles match. New Day and Riddle earlier in the show had some fun backstage. Xavier Woods came out slapping to base. Uh, Kofi randomly did a couple of Steve Austin signatures in the match, then hit his new frog splash crossbody, which is a cool move. Elias totally botched the SOS, avoided a hurricanrana, and then beat a former WWE champion with an elbow drop. I thought that was unfathomable booking here for a feud that seems to be going absolutely nowhere. There's no title on the line. I don't know why you beat Kofi. At some point, you got to give this guy the respect of being the former champion and all this type of shit. But I mean, it's not that big of a thing to get worked up over. Miz, also a multi-time champion, lost in the same night. But Elias is aimless. Priest, they're at least trying to push and do something with. Uh, We haven't had the Raw Tag Team Champions on TV since they won the titles. There's four other tag teams now on the show running in place. The other ones, two of them we're going to talk about right now. And Lucha House Party is not being used. So really, I guess there's actually six tag teams on Raw now that I actually count it. Um, It's weird. I didn't find this that entertaining. You know, I was just disappointed by it. Yeah, it's weird. I'm surprised Xavier Woods is not taking these pins and that instead Kofi is. Maybe they want Xavier doing his stuff on the ring side and that's why. But uh, yeah, that was weird. I mean, we admit we had Miz and Kofi lose here. That's two former world champions uh, losing on this show. And, and you talk about um, the problems with Raw coming out of Mania. You know, maybe something's going on. We don't know, but we haven't seen AJ and, and Omos. We didn't see Sheamus last week. We haven't really they haven't really promoted Ripley in a strong way. This is very strange on Raw coming out of Mania. Now we've had two episodes of Raw and a lot of their title changes and stuff like that have not been taken advantage of in these first couple of weeks while SmackDown did a pretty good job um, in its first show. So, yeah, just kind of another example of Raw spinning its wheels and not really knowing where it's going. By the way, for better or worse, we also haven't seen R-Truth in the 24-7 title in like three weeks. And I don't think we saw them at WrestleMania either. I know they're, they seem to be running some angle that's maybe only on social media for Old Spice. And if that's the reason why, fine. But Raw's been, it's been nice not having the 24-7 title there. It's been nice having Xavier Woods on the Raw Talk commentary table as opposed to having R-Truth there. I like R-Truth. I would love to get him involved again. But doing it without the 24-7 title, would prob- it's time to retire it, I think. It's pretty nice. I'd get rid of it, and I haven't missed it, certainly, on Raw. Uh, and finally, from Raw, just on its own, the Viking Raiders faced Cedric Alexander and Shelton Benjamin. Now, when we were talking about this being the exact same Raw from last week, it was the first segment being the McIntyre MVP situation, and then the second segment being this exact <laughs> same match. Uh, there was no entrance. Once again, they got a jobber entrance for Alexander and Benjamin second week in a row, completely insulting to those guys, completely insulting to fans who started buying into them and liking them over the course of the last six months or longer. Ivar cross-bodied Benjamin into the barricade. It was a cool spot before the Raiders won with the Viking experience. The match was so identical to last week. Adnan Verk fucked up the finisher, calling it Viking Express a second and third time in two weeks. Either that 
or they did change the name to Viking Express and no one told Corey Graves. I have a feeling they didn't change the name and he just screwed it up. So three times in two weeks, he's called the finisher wrong. He didn't, he called Ivar Eric last week. So I wasn't going to shit on him, but I had to mention it because there's nothing else to talk about with this match. Uh, The Raiders have no momentum whatsoever. Alexander and Benjamin, they're not buried because that term is overused, but it feels like they've just been kicked in the ass and told to go to hell and become jobbers. Uh, This did nothing for me. It sucked. I would have much rather seen the Viking Raiders against Elias and Jackson Riker and maybe Kofi against Alexander. I don't know what else they could have done. They could have done something else. Yeah, exactly. I I don't know why that they could have made it different. Nothing really other than to say, you know, compare how Raw does this to what SmackDown did with its tag teams. You know, they had no tag teams like two months ago and they built up like five teams or they had like one, they had Street Profits. They built up like four new teams and did it in a way where everybody looks good and you get to a, you get to a match where everybody has a shot. So whatever SmackDown does right there, Raw needs to figure out and, and do that because two weeks now after Mania and the tag team division looks like a complete mess again. So the last topic here is the women's tag team division and everything that's going on surrounding it. I have a little bit of a rant to go on. I'm going to try not to make it too long. And the first match was Natalia against Shayna Baszler. Yeah, it, it doesn't on, need on to be too long because this is this has been crap, and we know it's crap. So it's been crap, but like <laughs> don't I need, need to go to, too long. Into I know. It's, I just want to express why it is such shit, right? So we get Natalia and Shayna Baszler on Friday. Normally, I'd criticize them only putting one women's match on SmackDown, but there were four total matches on the entire show. Period, and the women did get plenty of time throughout the episode. Nia Jax is on the ring apron, distracting the referee, and Baszler avoided running into her, and you know got rolled up by Natalia, as usual. Tamina then super kicked Jax. Uh, it was just pathetic, repetitive stuff here. A super short match. You now have Shayna Baszler as 0-6-1 in singles matches since March 1st. 0-6-1 in seven singles matches. Forget the fact that it's Shayna Baszler, who is talented and one of the better women's wrestlers they have who should not be losing like this. She's half of the tag team champions, and she has not won a singles match in basically two full months. It makes absolutely no sense at all. Then you go over to Raw, and you have Nia Jax and Shayna Baszler against Naomi and Lana in a non-title match. There were some good quick tags between the faces. I'll give them a little credit. Naomi and Lana worked well together. And Lana legitimately booted Nia Jax right in the side of her her head, kicked her freaking head off. I I, I couldn't believe she did it. Uh, Baszler stomped on Lana's arm when all of a sudden Mandy Rose and Dana Brooke come out and decide they're going to start replaying Jax's embarrassments from last week. But instead of just showing her slipping off the apron or just showing them running her into that steel post backstage, they showed four different highlights right in the middle of a match, which tells me as a viewer, the match itself doesn't matter. Jax then refuses to tag in and storms off. So Baszler gets hit by a double X factor and loses two on one to Naomi and Lana. So they again told us the match didn't matter to at least one of the competitors involved because they had her walk off. And then they had Baszler lose again. Zero point zero. Rose and Brooke then cut a promo saying they're not the bullies. Jax chased them away backstage and Baszler tore her down for the loss and told her to stop getting distracted. Then... Angel Garza randomly shows up and asked what Jack saw in Reginald, who we haven't seen in three weeks. Like, Chris, what the hell was any of the stuff I just explained to you? 
I have I have no idea. This, this is two weeks in a row where we've had last week we have Mandy and Dana just quit their match and leave and be like cheered by commentary for it. Now we have Nia deciding to leave a match while Mandy and Dana are acting like heels and then bullying somebody saying they're not the bully. I don't know who to like in this story. <laughs> Nothing makes sense. Everybody's characters are being told to do stupid things. Shanna Baser, the most one of the most badass women you have in your company, looks like an idiot for months now. This is absolute madness. This is insanity. I don't know what the hell is going on in the women's tag division. Because so, now you have Naomi and Lana who have a claim for another title opportunity. A legitimate claim. They beat the champions clean in a non-title match. Clearly, Rose and Brooke are feuding with them. They're primarily feuding with Nia Jax. And then you have Natalia and Tamina who are basically still feuding with them because Natalia just beat Baszler, half of the tag team champions, one-on-one. So that's three of the five teams from the WrestleMania women's tag team turmoil match already feuding with the champions again. The only ones not feuding with them are the team everyone actually wants to win the titles, the Riot Squad, and the team where someone, one half of the team, got fired. It's like they're allergic to developing any women's storylines not involving the titles. There's no reason where they couldn't have just said, okay, you know what? We're going to continue a Mandy Rose, Dana Brooke storyline. Naomi and Lana, you start feuding with someone else, another woman on Raw. Okay, Natalia and Tamina, why don't you get into it? One of you with Carmella, the other one with Ruby Riot, and start developing some singles feuds. As Even though you can stay as tag teams, start developing these tangential feuds. And then when we need you as a tag team, we can cycle you back into the tag team title picture. Instead, they just don't know what to do with any of these women anymore. And they're like, okay, you're either in the Raw picture, the SmackDown picture, or the women's tag team picture. And that's, you have to be involved in one of those, search for the titles, or we don't have a use for you. Like, I don't need Baszler and Jax on SmackDown every week. They are a Raw team. There are two women's tag teams on Raw. Work a feud on that show for a while. Allow the SmackDown women to do something else. Then reverse it and rotate it every one or two months. I don't understand this shit. It's, it's, it's mind-numbing booking. And normally you would say, okay, it's focused on Raw. They don't get it, whatever. But it's invading SmackDown now because yeah. it's a team that is able to go between both brands. Yeah, it's like I said at the beginning of the show, which was do number one contender tournaments. Like there are so many wrestling fundamental stories you can use to create stories that are not everybody's feeding with the champion. It, it, it It's madness. It makes no sense. And, you know, you criticized, you know, AEW has been criticized a lot for its women's division and the lack of attention on it. But they are getting they're going back in the right direction by treating the women's wrestlers as serious fighters and giving telling multiple stories at once. WWE with the tag division is just completely incapable of doing that. It's been bad for weeks and coming out of WrestleMania, it looks like it's even worse now. I, I will say that the lower card, the non-title, the non-singles title picture for AEW is booked better than the WWE main roster. Similar people. You know, everyone who's not involved in the actual title matches is booked better from a women's standpoint in AEW mm-hmm. than, in w, than in Raw or SmackDown. NXT is still the best out of all of them, but AEW has significantly improved and their main event booking for women is actually improved as well. It's just not necessarily the same level yet of where WWE is 
for those main feuds. But there was a while when we had no idea what Asuka was going to do, where Reginald was still involved in the Sasha Banks and Bianca Belair feud, where, yeah, AEW was booking the women for like a two-week, three-week period better than the WWE main roster, which is shocking when you think about four or five months ago the way it was. But WWE, it seems like they're starting to claw back and book the main events better, which is good. But the lower card is booked like absolute dog shit. And we just broke it down for you. I hope that something shake out. Maybe they just need to have them drop the titles and that will realign everything. I don't know, but something needs to be done there. So that was the main event. That was the everything else that happened on Raw and SmackDown. We're through that part of the show. I said to Chris, I didn't want this to go on too long, but what I'm realizing is A&E is basically going to be doing a biography every week. So if we don't actually talk about it on this show, then we may want to talk about the Rowdy Roddy Piper one on next week's show. And then we won't have time to do both of them. Plus, there's the new Hidden Treasure show that some of you want us to talk about. So let's really quick talk about the Steve Austin biography. I thought they did a really good job. Here's my notes on it, and you can kind of answer, and then maybe we can just get through it. I thought it was wild that Mick Foley was randomly watching Austin's first ever wrestling camp in Texas, which is nowhere near Mick Foley's home. But he just so happened to be there and see Steve Williams, this guy Steve Williams, uh, trained at the very beginning to be a wrestler. I'm not sure I ever remember hearing such detail about the formulation of the Stone Cold character, especially the name itself. I'm sure it's been out there. Maybe it's in a book or he said it on his radio show, but I didn't remember it. I say this every time that King of the Ring is brought up. WWE must bring back King of the Ring as a pay-per-view or a special event. You see what it can do for someone. This is the paradigm. Steve Austin becoming Stone Cold, getting crowned, they could do something very similar with an Otis or a Gable or a Damian Priest or a Keith Lee if he comes back or even Riddle, establishing him as more serious. There's so many good ways you can use King of the Ring. They should bring it back. Austin316 says, I just whipped your ass. That's the bottom line because Stone Cold said so. Paradigms of organic character building and creation that we don't get these days because of all the scripted bullshit promos. That was an opportunity for a guy to go out there say something organic, and it just hit. You're not going to hit, you're not going to bat a thousand. Not all of them are going to work. Some of them are going to be bad. Some of them will be good. But you'll get one of these. You'll get Hangman Page randomly saying cowboy shit. And you'll start making t-shirts and selling them. You'll get Rusev Day. You'll start getting some of these little organic things that pop up that really can sell and put people over. And it was a perfect example of Austin being given a live mic and being given that opportunity. And then lastly, I know you can only go so deep in the biography, but they left out a lot from WrestleMania 13, 14, and 17, and they did not touch at all on his personal trials and tribulations. They said there was a divorce, but some very real shit happened with Steve Austin during those years, and they completely glossed over it, from drinking to spousal abuse, etc. It was less a biography on the man and more of a biography on the character, so I think we just probably need to have that in our head going forward for the rest of these. That was my take on the biography. Chris, what did you think about it and what stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, you hit a lot of the specifics. of. I'm sorry, stuff. I didn't mean to steal your thunder. No, no, that's that's good. I, I don't want to repeat it. I, I mean, yeah, if if you've seen, you know, WWE's done a ton of Austin documentaries. Austin tells his story on all kinds of interviews. For the most part, you know, if you've followed Stone Cold Steve Austin, you know a lot of the general story. There were some details I didn't know. I had never heard that Mick Foley, like you said, was watching Steve Austin's tryout uh, at at wrestling school. Uh, I had never seen that much about his football days. Um, So there were 
some new things that I didn't know. I didn't know the stuff about his his family um, and then moving to England, his his daughters yeah. and his one of his wives moving to England. So I didn't know yeah. a lot of that stuff. So that was good. But you get to, I think, a key big point, which is this is going to be, I don't want to say whitewashing it, but WWE obviously has a hand in this and this is a partnership and there are certain things WWE is not going to want to pretend happened. Some of that is, Stone Cold Steve Austin admitting to domestic abuse in 2002, I think it was. Um, so there, and it comes back to this is a really, really smart business decision by WWE. Nick Khan, who has now taken over a lot of uh, a big, he's a top guy at the company now. He's a former agent and he was Colin Coward's agent. Actually, did an interview with Colin Coward a couple weeks ago, right before WrestleMania. And he made a good point of like, you know, why did WWE never go to Peacock? Because he he realized they're not in the business of streaming. They're in the business of content. So let someone else do the streaming. You focus on the content. They get a billion dollars out of it. Great idea. They decided to do this stuff with A&E, the treasure show, docu- the, the biography shows. And it's about finding the people who used to like wrestling who aren't watching it now. My dad was texting me about the Austin biography. He said, oh, I want to watch this. I haven't. Uh, this looks interesting. He's a guy who watches A&E. I can't remember the last time I watched something on A&E. He watches it, really likes it, is thinking about watching wrestling again. I told him, watch SmackDown, don't watch Raw. Uh, but WWE is making a lot of these really smart business decisions to reach a new audience or an old audience and get back to them. And they are in control of a lot of the stuff and they're going to you know, paint Things with they're going to have you look back at things with rose colored glasses. They're going to show you all the good things and how great this stuff used to be. They're going to allude to and sometimes briefly mention some of Mm -hmm. the bad things, but not go deep into it. And so that's how, you know, it's how sports leagues work. It's how uh, pro athletes now have their own production companies and produce documentaries on themselves or on other people. The Players Tribune, which is, you know, there is a certain there is a certain point to which they will not go. There, there is a line that will not cross because it will eventually be damaging to the brand. It would be damaging to the brand if they talk about some of the bad stuff in Stone Cold Steve Austin's life. Not just, oh, I had trouble with my family and I wasn't there. I wasn't a good father. That's as far as they'll go. They won't go into those stuff. So I think as we go into this uh, biographies, Roddy Roddy Piper's up next. Are they going to talk about, you know, that time he painted himself half white, half black and cut that promo? Uh, before one of the WrestleManias? Probably not. So I, I think that's something to keep in mind going forward is that they are going to not dive too deep into the bad stuff. And it's un- unfortunate because you kind of want a full picture of it. But overall, I really liked the documentary, the Austin documentary. I learned stuff. Um, it, it was fun kind of reliving what it was like back in the late 90s watching him. So overall, it was really good. But I think it's also important to remember, you know, WWE is playing a big part, I think, in kind of... Uh, helping producers. Absolutely. And you know, somewhat the opposite can be said for Dark Side of the Ring. Yes, because exactly. with Dark Side of the Ring, you're going to get the unvarnished truth. Yep. But they only focus on negative. Yes. So Dark Side of the Ring is not going to come and do a documentary on McFoley talking about his entire career. And then I, I don't I don't mean to suggest that anything negative has happened with McFoley. So don't get it that way. But that's kind of why I chose him in my example. And then find something negative that happened with him or Talk about all his injuries and and how he can't walk anymore, or or his he doesn't have an ear, you know things like that. Um, they're not going to do that documentary. They're going to do a documentary on murder or abuse or shady stuff that happened backstage or the Montreal screw job or whatever the case. 
So there's really no one right now creating wrestling documentaries that are the unvarnished truth and not demonstrably negative. You know what I mean? So there's either the positive spin or the negative spin. And there's really nothing in between. You can say the dark side ones are completely truthful because it seems like they are, or they're at least trying their best to make them truthful, but they're focused on negative subjects. So that's kind of a, a weird thing. And it's it's one of the unfortunate um, developments of WWE owning all of these libraries and all of these character names from WCW, some NWA and uh, ECW. It's And a lot of these really old organizations is that they have the ability to put their spin on the truth. Now, I do find a lot of WWE's documentaries on the network to be forthright in many ways. There's certain things that they hide and there's certain things that they maybe twist, especially when you listen to like the Monday Night War stuff. Mm-hmm. They talk, they don't really get into how bad things were. They think, say things were bad, but they don't actually go and dive into it and talk about mistakes that Vince made, like legitimate ones. But it's to the point where like you just have to know what you're watching and accept it for what it is. I'm going to be very curious to see if the Rowdy Roddy Piper one, they open up a little bit more because he's not alive and because he's not Steve Austin, someone who is so valued by WWE that maybe they have, I didn't look at the credits. Maybe they have last, you know, cut rights or something like that. We'll have to see what the Piper one is like. Maybe it opens up. Maybe some of the ones in the future open up a little bit more, but this is what I'll say. Two hours, A&E biography, Steve Austin, entertaining. They had people on there. I didn't necessarily expect to be there. The rock and Jim Ross Mm -hmm. who are integral to telling his story. So that was great. And it looks like they have a lot of really cool people on the Piper one as well. So maybe we'll talk about Piper next week. Maybe we'll watch the uh, Hidden Treasures or whatever that show is called. I, I, I watched the first episode. Okay. It's it's okay. It's kind of like a History Channel corny on stars kind of corny? type of thing. It's not corny. It's just it's not. It, it was hard to kind of keep my attention. They they find somebody who has an old piece of memorabilia and Mick Foley and a guy try to convince the guy to sell it to him. So it's not it's not really at least the first episode was not a lot of like searching. They just knew who had it and they went to the guy. So we'll see how it it, it was. It was whatever. Makes sense. I'll, I'll watch it then since Chris already has. And I'll see if I agree or disagree. Maybe I'll just tweet it whether you should or should not watch it. But OK, that was it. Uh, a little bit longer episode than we anticipated, but got everything done under two hours. I'm going to consider that a win, considering we had a six part main event for the first time in show history. Uh, so that's it. We talked all things SmackDown. And Raw, that is our WWE show. We will be back on Thursday this week talking NXT and AEW as we do. NXT, yes, it has moved to Tuesday, but we are still saving the breakdowns for Thursday. We do two shows a week on this podcast. You know we do the extra shows, the interviews, the instant analysis, the instant reactions. So many weeks you do get more than two episodes. But our normal week will stay the same Tuesday and Thursday. Do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. Drop those DMs, drop those tweets to us, ask questions, and I will read them on this show as I always do. It's also a great place to see first episode releases and to interact with us live as we watch all these shows live and tweet about them so you can kind of send in your thoughts and maybe those will get read on the show as well. And also do not forget, head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review to let the Silver King, Vintage Chris Vanini, and people who have not yet listened to the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast let all of them know how much you love this show. It is all about the five, and I am still looking for that sound drop. So if anyone can find it for me, please DM 
you can tweet or you can email it to me directly, gettingoverpod at gmail.com. Any of those is acceptable. And last but not least, you saw we had or you heard, we had Manscaped as a sponsor for the last month. I want to thank them for doing that. It was great to have our first ever sponsor. If any of you are interested in sponsoring the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, let me know. Email me, gettingoverpod at gmail.com. We can work something out. Maybe Chris and I can get enough money in our pockets where we can get some new beer for each of these instant analysis once a month. That is the goal. So thank you all for listening. For Vintage Chris Manini, this is the Silver King Adam Silver. And I'm going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.